I'm going to talk to you from Galatians chapter 4. I'm not going to cover everything in this passage that we're going to read, but we're particularly going to look here at what I think is just an amazing picture of pastoral ministry, and even more importantly, a peek into the heart of our God. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but man, this has been a hard week. It's been a real hard week. Yesterday I was supposed to, well, Monday, yeah, yesterday, uh, I was supposed to, supposed to meet with a guy, Richard knows, I ended up completely forgetting about the meeting, but a guy who he and his wife both used to be on my core group, my leadership group, um, who's walking away from his marriage. This is, the, this is the year, I know this is probably a common occurrence for y'all, but this really is the, the year, really the first year that I've had a marriage fall apart, a marriage that I performed. And I'm not talking about the guy that I was supposed to meet with yesterday, but a, a previous situation. Uh, a year ago, my friend Dustin Salter was laying in a coma. Yesterday, we buried a friend of mine that I've known for almost 25 years, who was killed in a head-on car collision. Um, you look at this, this passage, and you find it's so applicable to the reality that, that we face and endure all the time. But even more importantly, I think this is a passage that gives us great encouragement in the midst of the groaning, in the midst of the confusion that is at the very heart of pastoral ministry. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 12. Paul writes these words. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tune because I am perplexed about you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we can sympathize and identify with Paul. And yet, Lord, how much more do we long and need to be groaning for those you've given us. Lord, forgive us for being content with having people like us when you call us to love in such a way that it hurts. And Lord, encourage us today that, Lord, not, just, not only are we called to groan, but you yourself are groaning until Christ will be formed in us. And may that give us encouragement and new life even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm really going to focus on those last couple of verses that I read. What I think you see here is a picture of pastoral ministry, and it may not be the picture you signed up for. <laughs> Groaning and being perplexed. I love that the Apostle Paul is perplexed and doesn't seem to know what to do with these people. I don't know what you expected to get from seminary. If you're here and you're a candidate and you're thinking about going off to seminary, I don't know what you hope to get, but I don't think many of us signed up so that we could graduate and go into a job where most of the time we don't feel like we really know what we're doing, <laughs> right? We go off to seminary, we expect we're going to learn all the answers. We're going to come back here and we're going to know how to help people. We long to help people and, and even to fix people. I remember uh, years ago, at Christ Community Church, I think this was, this was before I went to seminary, Larry Crabb came to our church. And this is when he had decided that he no longer wanted to be in the business of training professional counselors. And I remember I just finished reading his book, Inside Out, and feeling like, finally, somebody that's helping me know how to fix people. And he gets up and says, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> people come to me like they go to a car mechanic, asking them to diagnose and fix the problem. And the fact is, I've been spending my life training people to fix people, and I really don't know any more than the average person in the pew knows. I think in reality, the, the biggest thing I do to help people is I just listen to them talk. And so I'm going to change the focus of my ministry to training lay people how to listen to people talk. And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, Larry Crabb doesn't think he knows how to fix people. What am I going to do? But, but even more encouraging and sobering, to see the Apostle Paul say to these people, I am perplexed. And to talk about groaning for them, being as in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Is this just hyperbole? Is this, is this, is this really what we're to be about as pastors? I, I, I think we don't, we don't really want to go there, do we? I know if I think about my own life and I think about why do I resist this? I think that's actually a helpful way to think about reading the scriptures and thinking about preaching is to thinking about what is this teaching and why are we going to fight against this? And why are the people that I'm called to deliver this message to going to resist this? And I can think of a couple, couple good reasons why we might resist this picture that Paul gives us here. The first is, is sort of a theoretical objection. This idea that to be an effective pastor, you have to cultivate an attitude of professional detachment. That, that we need to be a rock in the midst of the groaning. Somebody's got to remain calm and collected, right? I remember, actually, before I was a pastor, I was a recording engineer, worked in a recording studio, and I remember the very first record that I ever worked on picking up a copy of it and looking at the credits and finding the thank yous. And, and the thank you that, that I was included in said this, thank you to Kevin, you're a rock. I thought that was pretty good. Until Clyde Godwin, years, ago, you know, years, after, years later, after I'd gotten out of seminary, said, Kevin, unless you can weep with those who weep, you will never be a pastor. You'll only be a teacher. And the Lord's called you to be a pastor. Do we cultivate an attitude of professional detachment? Because we have this theoretical idea that a pastor is somebody who's always stately and reserved 
and in control. I think we also resist it because, frankly, we just get exhausted. We just feel like all we can really muster is to go through the motions. And I know that that we're all there at times, maybe even today. I think we also resist it, and this one applies to me in particular, maybe you can identify. We resist it because we're scared spitless. (laughs) And uh, we we really feel like we need to be in control. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to groan. Because it reminds me that I really don't have control over the situation. The, 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 the longer I, I sort of in this journey of being a pastor, of going from, you know, enjoying reading theology books to actually pastoring real people, the more I've had to realize that I'm not in control. I think we resist it. Again, I, I think so many of us think we can go to seminary and learn the answers so we can fix people. <laughs> But how do you relate to this passage? How do you relate to this picture? Do you know, do I know what it means to groan for those that God has called me to love and to care for? Do we we know what it means to be in the pains of childbirth until Christ would be formed in our people? And let me remind you, that's a pretty graphic image. It's a pretty difficult thing today, even with epidurals. But when Paul's writing about this, that's a a pretty gruesome image. My wife had two C-sections, and the the anesthesia didn't work in either one, right? It was a pretty pretty brutal thing, but it it probably paled in comparison to what childbirth meant in Paul's day. This is a very strong image, and yet... I find that I, I resist this. I would rather trade this picture for, for another picture. I, I, I think so often, honestly, I've become content with people liking me when God has called me to be groaning as in the pains of childbirth for those people God has called me to love until Christ would be formed in them. Now, before you sign up for this this picture that Paul presents here, I have to warn you, groaning for people may make people hate you. It's very sobering what Paul says in verse 16. I mean, the way that this relationship has changed. I mean, he talks about the love that these people had for him and how they they treated him as if he were Christ himself. And now they treat him as their enemy. Because he's telling them the truth. You know, the false teachers, the false teachers are looking for worshipers. And of course, it has to be the case, because if they're believing the gospel that they're preaching, I say gospel in quotes, the idea that God's love for them is based on how well they obey the law, if they believe that, of course, they have to be incredibly insecure. And so they have to have followers. But what, Christ, what Paul is modeling for us is if the gospel should be the thing that sets us free so that we're willing for people to hate us because, because we have to tell them the truth. If our real goal is God's goal, which is for Christ to be foreign in them, it propels us beyond merely wanting people to like us. 
But we have to ask ourselves that question. Are we content to merely gain followers? I mean, think about how much easier it would have been for Paul to wash his hands of these people. To, to, say, to say to God, well, you know, God, I, I gave it a good shot. I mean, I, I was there. I didn't actually intend to go there, but you led me there, and I preached the gospel to them. And it was because of an illness. It wasn't because I intended it. But, well, you really blessed this ministry. Then you called me elsewhere, and now, look, it's not my fault that things have, have happened. These people are like dumb sheep, and they followed these people that are teaching the, not teaching the truth. But I told them all the right stuff. I, I think I've, I really need to move on and go deal with, you know, people that they're seems to be a better chance of, of being a more fruitful ministry if I go to some new place. But no, no. He can't get away from groaning. And notice how he says it's again that I'm groaning until Christ would be formed in you. He can't get away from it. I, think, I actually think that the reason we have the book of Galatians is because the groaning that caused him to write this letter in God's providence actually helped. They didn't ball it up and throw it away. I think we always need to be very careful lest we judge the potential outcome of a situation by what we can imagine, right? God calls us to groan. He doesn't call us to evaluate whether the groaning is worth it. Do you groan for your people? Or are you content with just getting more people? I think we, we play this little game where we feel like if I gather more and more people, I'll be so busy that I can justify ministering on a superficial level. Because I'm so busy. <laughs> but the fact is, I know my heart, and I know that I'm so tempted to find any excuse I can to not have to go to this place of groaning. Busyness is a good excuse. But I want us to see something else in this passage. I want us to see that this isn't just a picture and a challenge for us. This is a peek into the heart of our God. Do you remember, one of the emphases of the, of the letter to the Galatians is that Paul is speaking not just as some guy, but as an apostle who speaks on God's behalf. He emphasizes this point in chapter 1, right? This is the word of God. This is God's message to the Galatians. And by extension, God's message to us. What that means is, what that means is, it's not merely Paul who's groaning for these Galatians. But the good news is, it's God who groans. Paul, in giving this picture, in revealing to them his heartache, is actually giving them a peek into the heart of God himself. Now, this isn't a, a strange idea. Maybe it seems like a strange, potentially scary idea to Presbyterians. But the fact is, the Bible speaks quite a lot about God's groaning for his people. I'll read you a couple verses. This is from... Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. God says, In all their distress, he too was distressed. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 14. For a long time I have kept silent. 
I've been quiet and held myself back, but now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, I faint. Let me tell you, if you look at the context of Isaiah 42, that gasping, that crying out, that panting, is until the full consummation of all things. It didn't end with Christ coming into the world. God the Father reveals himself as a woman screaming in the agony of childbirth. I wonder where Paul got that image, that language. Do you you know this? But not only does God the Father groan, God the Holy Spirit groans. You remember Romans chapter 8? A lot of groaning going on in Romans chapter 8, isn't there? The creation groans. We groan, awaiting the adoption as sons. But the Holy Spirit also groans. So God the Father groans. God the Holy Spirit groans. And of course, Jesus himself groans. We can even say Jesus himself was perplexed. Carefully, but yet, two passages I can think of. Just off the top of my head, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, and yet you wouldn't. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Brothers, don't run from the groaning. Because it's a doorway into connecting with the very heart of our God. I mean, God's love is the only thing that can propel us beyond surfacy professional detachment. And must, I have to say, aren't you glad that God doesn't minister with cool professional detachment? Right? It's the only thing that can propel us beyond our fear. It's the only thing that can sustain us in the heartbreaking work of pastoral ministry is to hear the groaning of our God for us. I'll tell you when this really hit home to me. I, um, and I told you about, about Clyde's words to me. And um, I remember I was, I was up in the, the Baltimore area one time with Wendy and I. This was years ago. And we happened upon a used bookstore, and as is my custom. Of course, we checked it out. And I, I found a, a volume, it's become one of my most precious volumes. It's the complete poetical works of James Montgomery. Now, if Paul Richardson was here, sorry, not Paul, um, um, Paul, my, my neighbor, and Millie, Paul, uh, Snyder, yeah. If Paul Snyder was here, he could tell you about James Montgomery. James Montgomery was a Moravian pastor, poet, and hymn writer. He also was a, a poet and a hymn writer who got thrown into jail for criticizing the government. And uh, we need more Christian songwriters that get thrown into jail for what they, what they say. Anyway, um, he's a great hero of, of the Moravians. He also was the hymn writer who wrote at least one hymn that you would know, Angels from the Realms of Glory, right? But there's a poem in his complete poetical works that I, I started to flip through this volume. I remember Wendy was driving, so I started kind of browsing through this volume, and I came upon a poem about the prayers of Jesus. And it got to the, to the section where it talked about Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after describing that prayer and his blood like great drops 
or his, his sweat like great drops of blood on the ground, it said, it said these, this, listen to these words. Montgomery says, Here, oft in spirit, let me kneel. Share in the speechless griefs I see. And while he felt what I should feel, feel all of his love to me. Break my hard heart and grace supply for him who dies for me to die. While he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me. What Montgomery is saying is as we look at Christ crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have there an opportunity to connect with the very heart of our God. In other words, the groaning that we resist, the groaning we resist is a doorway into understanding the groaning God himself felt because of his love for us. In other words, the thing that I resist is is actually a doorway into understanding and emotionally connecting with the love of our God. B.B. Warfield reminds us in his classic article on the emotional life of our Lord that Jesus' sufferings did not begin at the cross. They began with the very incarnation. That he he was a man of sorrows. He, He was circumcised on the eighth day. His flesh was cut, not because he needed to be cleansed. He was a man of poverty, because of his love for us. He was acquainted with grief because of his love for us. Imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to look at the brokenness and the suffering that had come to the people that he created. Right? And so here you understand that as you, if, if we run away from the groaning, we, we end up missing one of the greatest opportunities to actually feel the love of God for us. And I don't know about you, I, I don't like to groan. I don't like to feel this. I don't like to feel out of control. And then I wonder why so often the cross is such a theoretical thing and it doesn't connect emotionally with me. And yet one of the things I found, brothers, is that I need to sit in that emotion. The thing that I would do anything to avoid is the thing that Jesus took and he didn't have to. The thing that I would do anything to avoid, to groan, to sit in in the midst of not knowing what to do, is the thing that Jesus took and he didn't have to. The cross can never remain theoretical to us. We have to hear the groaning of our God for us. Don't run away from the groaning. What will it look like for Christ to be formed in us? What is God's goal? What what does he want? He wants ministers that reflect him. How will we get there? Only as we understand and hear the groaning of our God for us. I remember in seminary taking a class in hospital counseling. And um, a mentor of mine from that class, Seth Dearness, passed away a couple years ago. And if any of you had the opportunity to meet him, you were were blessed indeed. But I remember what this class was. We basically would meet together. We'd talk a little bit about something. And then he would send us off onto the floor with a list of of patients, their name, 
their room number and their condition with a number one through five. No details about their condition, just one through five, depending on how, um, how serious their condition was. And I remember one of the first rooms I ever walked into. I walked in, and there's a woman sitting in a chair, very older woman, way far away from the door, back by her bed. And as I walked in, she started to get really agitated. And as I took a step towards her and attempted to use soothing language, language she just started to freak out. She started to scream. I, I took another step toward her, and it just got worse. I didn't know what to do. I turned around, and I walked out of the room. <laughs> and I remember going back to, back to Seth after that and saying, you know, telling him what I did. And he said, huh. He goes, what I want to encourage you to do is the next time you're in that situation, I want you to walk over and take her by the hand. Like, what? This woman had Alzheimer's. She didn't know what was going on. There was nothing I could say that was going to help. But he said, Kevin, I think think you were more consumed by your comfort level than you were in being the presence of God to her in that moment. What does it mean for Christ to be formed in us? What do we want more? To feel like we're doing our jobs well? (laughs) Or for Christ to be formed in our people and in us? Because I tell you, groaning and being perplexed will either harden you or humble you. And it has everything to do with whether it drives you to the heart of God. And whether or not it's a doorway into understanding the love of God. When you're in distress, does it cause you to reflect on God's distress? Because it's not just about you. Why hasn't God cut and run? Why hasn't God ended his groaning? Why hasn't he washed his hands of us? What did it really mean for Jesus to love us? You know, there's a part of the liturgy that most of us don't use anymore called the Great Litany. Um, they still use it in some of the Anglican churches and the Moravian church. And it's this, this amazing part of, the, of the, the liturgy where they systematically go through all of the different aspects of Jesus and what he did and what he suffered. And each one of those is an encouragement for us to be bold to come before the Lord in prayer. And, and it says things like, for thy suffering, uh, circumcision on the eighth day, for thy being born in poverty, for thy having nowhere to lay your head, for thy being betrayed with a kiss, on and on and on. And I think, brothers, so often we reflect merely on Jesus dying on the cross, and yet the groaning of Jesus defined his life. There is no groaning that you will undergo that doesn't find an echo in the heart of Christ and in the experience of Christ. In all your distress, he too is distressed. And until we get this, we'll never be able to truly truly groan or to carry on in the midst of being perplexed. Again, a year ago, my friend Dustin was lying in a coma. Yesterday, I buried my friend of 25 years. I'm tired of groaning. You tired of groaning? But I have to ask myself, Do I groan for Christ to be formed in those the Lord has called me to love? Do I groan for Christ to be formed in me? Or do I just want things to quit hurting? 
What does God want from us? I think this table tells us. It's an amazing thing that, that Paul tells us that past, present, and future are all gathered together in this meal that we celebrate. So we celebrate this meal. It's a remembrance that Christ has died, and we proclaim his death in the past right now until he comes again. This table does not make everything fine and hunky-dory. This table soothes us, comforts us, nourishes us, but it also whets our appetite and, if you will, even increases our groaning. This is a picture into the heart of our God who, rather than wash his hands of us, was baptized in blood, who, rather than forsake us, was forsaken by his Father. May we be richly encouraged, but also deeply challenged and sobered. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your love. We do thank you for your groaning. Lord, forgive us for for trying to be content with having people like us, with gathering more people, rather than longing for Christ to be formed in us and in those that you call us to love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are committed to forming Christ in us. And may you encourage us to work with you rather than against you, both in the lives of the people that we are called to minister to and in our own lives. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of our resistance, that you will triumph that you will complete the good work that you began. We thank you for this meal and the role that it has to play in this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, for your body, for the brothers, and the encouragement that we, that we can have through fellowshipping together, sympathizing, empathizing with each other in the perplexing nature of pastoral ministry and the groaning. And we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't run from the groaning. And we thank you that you didn't run from the groaning. We say and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.